The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, God my saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Don't hand me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Good morning. Please take your seats. And let me show you four funny pictures that are on the screen. About 30 years ago, there is a new form of exercise that was developed called HIT. High intensity interval training. Apparently, it makes you fly. If you look at the bottom left-hand corner picture, it's immensely powerful, this sort of exercise. You can fly in the sky. But uh, by varying the sort of exercise you do and the uh, intensity, the degree to which you do it, it's not about doing more in terms of number or time, it's about doing it to the best of your ability for a shorter amount of time. That's high intensity interval training. I had to look it up, as you can tell from my figure. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a bit like that. The Lord's Prayer is quite a workout. It's intense. There's something intense about it. Think of what we've been thinking about this month in the, the month thinking about the topic of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to make much of you in the world in which you've called me to live. But because of who you are, I can come to you with all my needs. I want to adore you and enjoy you, but uh, I also need to eat. So please, I recognise that comes from you and so on. Please don't leave me to temptation. Please save me from the evil ones and the evil one in particular. So you're asking God for lots of things. You're enjoying who he is. You recognise the world in which you live is under his sovereign and good care. But then right at the end, in some of our translations, there's another verse or two. Some of us don't have it, some of us do, and it goes like this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And on first reading, it can appear a bit like that moment when you're trying to design your first signature. 
Do you remember those days when you just have a piece of paper and you spend a long time and you do lots of uh, experimentation with the font size and with the flourish and going off on your S's and, and so on? Is it just like that with the Lord's Prayer, this statement? Bit of a rhetorical flourish at the end uh, of what Jesus taught us how to pray. I don't think it is. I think it's really important because the foundational level to prayer and the Lord's Prayer is a spirit of deep, settled confidence in the goodness of God. It's a, it's a prayer of repose, a prayer of safety and leaning and quiet, gentle confidence, not in yourself, but in the character and nature and promises of God. It's confident rest. Psalm 27 is like that. We're going to do what we've done throughout the month of January, looking at the Lord's Prayer, but through the lens of the Psalms. It's a, it's a Psalm of David, Psalm 27. You can see that from uh, verse 0, as we call it, right at the top of the Psalm. But look at what he's facing. This is uh, going to be a little bit, hopefully, more practical than, than recent uh, sermons as we think about prayer. But first of all, we need to get under the skin of Psalm 27 and think, what is David facing as he prays this prayer of confidence and uh, repose? What's he praying and what's he facing? Well, verse 1, 2 and 3 say that David is facing fearful things. He's in turmoil and yet there's a deep-seated confidence or repose in his spirit. Verse 1, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Why? Because when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's a beast-like animalistic word, though an army besiege me, though war break out against me. Here's David, the king of Israel. He's used to uh, leading the armies of Israel remotely or in person. And yet, although he's the king, he's surrounded by people that want to do him harm. Real enemies with swords and weaponry and intent to take his life. Now, it's unlikely, because we live in Surrey, darling, that uh, you're going to have an army coming around your front door and saying, we're going to take your head off your shoulders. Very unlikely that's going to happen. But look at what David is saying. There's a spectrum of what he is facing. There are literally people that want to take his head off of his shoulders to take his throne. That's what he's facing. That's what he's experiencing. Armies, it says here, are besieging him. So there's evil out there, people that want to do him harm. But look down at verse 10. In verse 10, it comes far closer to home. If my mother or father forsake me, so here's one end of the spectrum. Armies, battles, chariots, spears, bloodthirsty men and motives. Here's the other end of the spectrum. Emotional hardship and difficulty and sorrow. And arguably, both are oppressive and both are equally draining. I mean, what is more crushing to a person, a boy or girl or an adult, than knowing that your parents don't approve of you, don't love you, don't accept you and would rather than embrace you, they would rather reject you. There's nothing more crushing than that from verse 10 and from our own experience as well. And it's fascinating to me again. I mean, the Bible is so earthy in its realism. 
It understands the human heart because it's written by God who made us more than any other book. It's quick to speak about loss and love, struggles and temptation, fears and rejection. And David says, whether it's physical, armies surrounding you, evil men with evil plans and hearts, whether it's emotional turmoil on the inside, there is a hope that David has, a deep-seated confidence in who God is. That's what he's facing, but he has something that enables him to end the psalm with confidence, verse 13. I'm still confident of this. I will see God. So he's surrounded by evil men. He's got these awful pressures in his own heart and emotional structure, verse 10. So what does he do about it, number two? What does he do about what he's facing? What's going to help him keep a handle on his life? and not lose his footing or not lose heart. Verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. First thing to notice is what he's not doing. It is fascinating to me when you look at verse 1, 2 and 3. You've got uh, verse 2, evil men advancing, this animalistic language of devouring flesh. Verse 2, enemies and foes. You've got a warfare language of verse 3. What does David not ask for? He doesn't ask for deliverance. Now there's nothing wrong with asking for practical help from God, asking God for stuff, asking God like the imprecatory psalms, which are those psalms sometimes we're embarrassed of as Christians that say, Lord I want you to break the teeth of the wicked those kind of uncomfortable psalms that are there in the book of Psalms. There's a right time to pray for God to reveal the strength of his mighty right hand and to do away with your enemies from the right motives always. But David doesn't ask for that here. What does he ask for? Verse 4, here's the one thing I want more than anything else. And this word, uh, front-loaded, in verse 4, is very, very intense. The way it's structured in terms of sentence structure and grammar. Remember that stuff, boys and girls? Grammar that you did for uh, spag exams and spag tests when you did your sats. This is, this is just the same thing, but in a language called Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in. And David says this, there is one, 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 one thing that I really want, and it's you. I want you more than anything else. I don't care what it takes that's the effect of what David is saying and how it's written in verse 4. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what I have to do to get it. But the one thing I need most of all is not deliverance from the armies. It's not even to keep my head on my shoulders. I'm not afraid of death. There's one thing, verse 4, that I need and I want to dwell in your house forever. Now that's a not naive, it's not saying if I dwell in your house my enemies will just come up to the door and then politely turn away. Enemies don't do that, they smash the door down and get to the person they want no matter what the cost. Look at history. But what it is saying, David is saying, I know in my heart of hearts that there's one thing in the whole world that I need and it's not my safety, it is you. And I want to know you. I want to not know about you. I want to know the reality of you. I want to have a relationship with you. My soul thirsts for you. I want an intensity to my relationship with you. 
because you're worth it and I love you and I trust you and I know that joy is found in nowhere else and no one else. We're just back where we were last week in Psalm 73. This intensity of knowing the beauty of God and enjoying him forever. I mean, the Bible is not just honest about the struggles we face. The Bible is also very uh, understanding because of who's written it about the temptations there are in the world, isn't it? If you set your heart on anything in this world, it will enslave you. You will become a captive to it. Here are some examples. If you're lazy, I won't look at anyone, I shut my eyes. If you're lazy, you're a lazy person. You just, it, a lion is, is up until five o'clock in the evening <laughs> rather than getting up in the morning. That's you, you're a lazy person. Really, the Bible says you're looking for peace, but you're looking for peace that only God can give. Perhaps you flip to the other side, I won't look at anyone again. Perhaps you're ambitious, you want to make a name for yourself. More than enjoying who God is, you really want to make a name for yourself. The Bible says you're looking for glory in the wrong place. You're looking for glory and satisfaction that work will not give you. It will ruin you and ruin relationships potentially. But everything we long for, everything we're trying to find, is found only in verse 4. David can see that. He's the king of all Israel. He would have denied himself very little, if anything at all. Everything he had that the world offers. And yet, what does he say? Verse 4, without reading too much into it, I can see through it all, there is one thing I need. And it's not gold, it's not women, it's not alcohol, it's not, there's one thing I need. And it's you. Only knowing the Lord Jesus Christ will get you through life. Only knowing the Lord Jesus Christ will enable you to face loss to face the loss of figure and uh, noticeability and uh, financial loss and emotional heartache that comes along with grief, whatever struggle you face, only knowing God will get you through that. It's a prayer of repose. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Notice verse 4, because where it's written, David does not say, I want to use you, God, like we spoke about last week, It's not saying, I want to use you to get me out of this bind and this pickle and this great war situation. David says, I want to know you more because you're beautiful. I want to know you more. And that's all that matters to me, no matter what it costs. I want to know you more. I'm not going to ask anything from you to make my situation easier. My heart's longing is that I will know you more personal, intimate, real fellowship with David and his God. It doesn't matter what the enemies do to me. I want to know you. I want to know you more. But let's get practical. How does he do it? How does he do it? Let's come down the ladder of abstraction. Lest we still think, okay, this is a series of prayer, but what does it mean to pray? Well, I think David shows us in this psalm of repose. Let's be practical. Verse 4 again. Two verbs. You can ask someone who's 11, 12, 13 what they are. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord, gaze, that's one, and to seek him in his temple. So if you're at school, what is it? Gazing and seeking. What does it mean in prayer to do what David tells us to do? To gaze, 
to gaze on the beauty, it means exactly what you think, doesn't it? Gazing means to look, but not just look once. Lovers do it all the time. You gaze into the eyes of your beloved and you notice stuff about them. You notice something about their, their hair that you've not noticed before. Not that it's turning grey, but you notice something about that and you enjoy your beloved. You enjoy the one who has your heart. It's not just physical. You notice something about how they act and their character. You notice something about their tenderness and their heart for other people and you enjoy them. So to gaze means to stare, not in a creepy way, but to stare at something because you delight in it. It could be a flower, the first flower of spring. It could be an animal in a wildlife. But you're enjoying something and you're studying it and you're gazing upon it so much so that uh, the details are popping to you. They're becoming more and more apparent to you. There's things that you are gazing at intently and you notice, well, you could shut your eyes and then it's there because you've gazed so much, you've studied it, you've been fascinated by it, you've noticed details, you've noticed a little bit of dew on a rose petal that wasn't there before. You've noticed the detail of a butterfly and the beauty and the colours on its wings. So David is saying, this is not an abstract understanding of God. I want to gaze upon him. I want to enjoy him. I want to study him. I just, I just want to know about him. I want to know him and really focus my heart's affections upon him. John Owen was a 17th century theologian and pastor. He, he knew something of who God is. And he says, we settle far too easily just for concepts, for stuff in books about who Jesus Christ is. He says this, we shall find no transforming power given to us if you just settle for a concept of who Jesus is. No transforming power. Only when our affections of our heart cleave to him with purpose of heart and our minds fill up with thoughts and delight in him, then change of character will proceed to purify us and sometimes fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Your mind is transformed, that warms your heart. God goes from being a concept to a reality. And you feel his love in your heart. Sometimes we're full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. How do you do that? By gazing. By gazing on the beauty of God. Your mind is going 100 miles an hour as you study, but then your heart is informed and strangely warmed as the Holy Spirit touches your very person as you read this book, you're drawn to him. We've said this before, it's not enough just to know God is a God of love. You need to feel it, you need to sense it, you need to feel and know that he delights in you. It's not enough just to know that God is holy, it's to understand his holiness so that you know something in your life needs to change. That's the difference between knowing about God and knowing him. It's beginning to impact your heart. Well, how do you do that? How do you gaze? Two things, really quick. It's about praise. When you gaze upon someone that you love and enjoy, when you're struck by the beauty of God, you want to praise him. You cannot keep still or silent. You take time to gaze upon the beauty of God. 
You're actually going to him in prayer and saying, this is what I find beautiful about you. I'm just awestruck by who you are. Can I say how thankful I am? You are beautiful beyond description. You're too marvellous for words. You take the words of a song, you take the words from a psalm or another part of the Bible and you turn it into fuel for praise and appreciation. Here's the second thing. You're satisfied. When you gaze, it's not just praise, song, words, art, expression. It's also satisfaction. Verse 3 could read, Lord, please will you defeat the army? Please will you smash their teeth in and so on? Please can I use you to meet my needs because I know what's best. But it doesn't read like that. In verse 4 he's saying, I want to know you and that's the one thing I need. It's the best thing for me. Anyone can find God useful. He's the genie in the lamp from Aladdin. I need you to get me out of this pickle at work. I need you to help me in this relationship. I need you to help me as a parent. But only a Christian finds God beautiful. That's the difference. There was a time, 10 years ago, when I bought myself a bicycle because I was determined to become a mammal and just own my Lycra in middle age because I wanted to engage in some long-term, long-distance long endurance races. So I bought myself a bicycle. Um, I didn't shave my legs. I didn't go that far. But I squeezed into uh, my Lycra. I discovered what a muffin top is as my tummy came over some elastic. And, uh, but then I hit the road. And over a period of months, I just put in a lot of miles because I needed to do 80 miles in an endurance race and 100 in another one and that sort of stuff. I did exercise because I had a goal. I did exercise because I needed to get fit. I needed to lose some pounds and because I said that I would do an endurance race. I was doing the exercise for a purpose. But then the strange thing happens. After I did the endurance races, I then started to cycle just because I enjoyed it. That was the main aim for me. I started off, I was doing it because I had to. But then I started to do it because I wanted to. It was good for me. I enjoyed being outside. It cleared my head. It helped me. David's got to the place, do you see? David understands that God is not useful. God is beautiful. And you can do that with cycling. You can do that with learning scales for music. It's such a bind. But then you start to play just because you enjoy playing. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Gazing on the beauty of God. But then it's seeking him, seeking him. Verse 4, you've got the word seek. You've got a very similar word in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, teach me. To seek God means to learn about God and who he is. I want to gaze on your beauty. I want to learn your word. And the two are very, very closely linked. If you want to see the beauty of God, you need to seek God in his word. So you're thinking through, you're meditating on one word or a sentence, or a topic, something of God's character. If God is love, if God is this great, that he loves me, that he saved me at infinite cost to himself, and he'll never let me go, if at the end of time he's going to make me perfect, if he died for me and if he was raised for me, and I'm therefore raised with him, if I have a future that is certain and secure, that must shape and affect my present. Hope in the past, shaping the future, changing everything in the present. 
And as you do that sort of thing, as you meditate and pray over a word, part of God's character, part of his nature, one of his promises, you would move from learning to seeking to gazing. There's a man called George Muller. He used to live down in Bristol. Remarkable man spent uh, all his life's energies on creating orphanages for children, for boys and girls. He never asked for money. He prayed and God provided miraculously throughout his life. He cared for 10,000 boys and girls. Remarkable ministry. I mean, talk about busy. He uh, got up early. He went to bed very late. But rather than nervousness, his life was saturated by prayer. He's a busy person. What's the first thing he did in the morning? I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Do you know something of that? Passion to do that? It's not a guilt trip. Do you know something of that, Christian friend? You want to seek, you want to gaze, you want to learn. Not always in the morning, you can do it any time of the day that fits into your life. But is there that passion? Is there that desire? Is that uh, dissatisfaction? God, I knew something of you in 2021. I long to learn, know you more deeply. It's the one thing you have to do. The one thing. You've got to find time for it. Things might have to move. Schedules might have to change. David is saying, I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what it costs. I want to know you. I want to know you. Look at verse 6. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent, and then my head will be exalted above my enemies. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. So he's not thinking, if I get in there, I'll be safe, because I'm sure his enemies would just come in and bulldoze the tabernacle. But he's recognizing, when I have you, I have all I need. And I'll be eternally safe and secure. My head will be held high. I won't have a worry in the world if I have you. In 1850, six uh, men got on a boat and they left from England to go to South America, to Patagonia. Tragically, although they wanted to start a mission, they uh, were shipwrecked off the coast of South America on Pacton Island. No other ships came by for over a year. One by one, they started to die from starvation. Thirst, hunger, they died one at a time. The leader, who, was, who had been a captain in the Navy, was Alan Francis Gardiner. And as he was dying, as he recognised that he'd lost everything and everyone, he'd lost his health, he'd lost his wife, he'd lost those who had come along with him as well, he was keeping a journal. Dying man with dying men, and yet he kept a journal. And he wrote this. I am, by his abounding grace, kept in perfect peace, refreshed with a sense of my Saviour's love and assurance that all this is wisely and mercifully appointed. All the suffering, all the loss, all the death, all the hardship is wisely and mercifully appointed. This is virtually the last thing that he wrote. I'm just filled with the sense of my Saviour's love. And I know that he is merciful and wise in why he's letting this happen. Almost to the very end of his life. And there's not one doubt in his mind, in his journal. He's stripped of absolutely everything. And he's overwhelmed with the goodness 
of God. Was he mad? Was the food lost? His kind of sense of mental agility? Wasn't he scared? How could he write that? When everything had gone wrong and he'd lost everything the world had said he needs. Because in his heart of hearts, verse 6, his head was being lifted up in spite of his enemies. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. But how is David in this psalm, this psalm of repose, gazing, seeking, surrounded by his enemies but still pursuing God, how is he confident that this is going to work? How is he confident, finally, that it's going to work? He starts off with confidence, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. That's a, a word of, he's my mountain refuge. No one can do me harm. But if you look down at verse 13 at the end, in hard times I'm going to seek you, verse 13, I remain confident of this. His confidence is still there at the end of the psalm. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. I mean, why is he so confident that seeking God is going to work, that he's going to be satisfied as he seeks God? Verse 5, I mean, how dare he write verse 5? You will hide me in the shelter of your sacred tent. This is the tabernacle. This is the place where God dwelt on earth. This is the, the place of Shekinah glory, where the majesty and glory and presence of God dwelt amidst the cherubim on top of the tabernacle. Once a year the high priest could go in and see the glory of God and he would do so with fear and trembling. And yet David has the confidence to say, verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will not. You will hide me, verse 5. You will shelter me. How has he got the audacity to say that? Now we don't know what David thought. We don't know why David is so confident about this conviction. But what should go through our minds as we read this psalm? In John 1, we read the word Jesus Christ became flesh, not just dwelt among us, but literally he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Here is God in human form and he is choosing to dwell with us. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. He's the bridge between people who want to say my world, my way, and his goodness and his promises. How can David say, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will not? Because he can see with the eye of faith of what God would do. How can we say that with more confidence? <laughs> because on the cross, God forsook his son. And because he forsook his son, he will never forsake you, even if your mum and dad have forsaken you in your life. On the cross, he's dying in our place. On the cross, he's taking the punishment that we deserve. And so that's why David could see predictively that God would do something so that he could dwell in his presence with confidence. But we can look back with clarity and say God has done something so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will never push you away. He will never desert you. Those who are in Jesus Christ are eternally safe and secure and you are part of the beloved, part of God's family. In Jesus, we see the beauty of God on earth. He emptied himself of his glory 
so that we might be holy and blameless in God's sight. That's beautiful. Verse 10, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will bear me up. How can you live in a world like this? By knowing that truth. How can you live in this world where you'll be rejected by Christians, let alone non-Christians? By knowing a truth like that, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will bear me up. I have a love, says God to us in the gospel, that will enable you to face anything. It's the one thing you need. And David could see that. 